Hey, what's going on? Thanks for checking out the podcast. You're here in the right place if you're looking for tactical outbound and sales advice to help you land more meetings and close more deals with your ideal clients. So thanks for tuning in. My name's Jason. I'm your host. And today we're talking to Ryan Staley. And I'm super excited for this. So Ryan runs a company called Whale Boss. And what we're going to be talking about today is decision-making funnels. Let's get to it. So we're not going to talk much about prospecting today. What Ryan's specialty is, and if you're a BDR, by the way, and you're listening to this or an SDR, there's a lot of really good insights you're going to get around how to do account planning, you know, how to pick the right people at the company to reach out to. Ryan's specialty is implementing seven and eight figure sales systems with the companies that he works with and helping them find really, really big clients. And he's going to walk us through a framework he calls decision-making funnels. So essentially, how do we reverse engineer the largest deals? You know, where do we find these people? How do we discover the right people to talk to? So how do we kind of create this stack ranking system, in other words, to figure out who holds the budget, who has authority, who's got priority? We're going to dig into that. The second thing is this goals, roles, and priorities types of thing as well, where how can we find the people that we can align with in terms of their goals? How can we get customer referrals? Into those folks, he shares a really good hack that you can use on LinkedIn to do that. And also he talks about this concept I think is really important. Emotion creates action. There's a lot of talk in sales right now that the relationship is not important. And his thinking is that, dude, if you want to close a like a high six-figure or seven-figure or eight-figure deal, the relationship is everything. You know, because this person's job is on the line if they make a bad choice over their vendor. So you're going to get some an immense amount of value from this. I'm super excited. I had, I had such a good conversation with Ryan around this. So I'm excited for you to take a listen. Before we get to this, if you've been listening to this podcast for a little while and you're thinking, well, how do I kind of level up my sales game and apply some of these things? Get some coaching, be a part of a community, you know, kind of 300 style, right? I think of Leonidas and Spartans, right? Being around a group of people like that that really are serious about leveling up their game. I recommend you reach out and ask me about Outbound Squad. It's a new program that I just launched. It's for top performers that want to be in either the top 1% of their company. They want to add one, two, three thousand $3,000 per month to their income. And more importantly, they just want to make a way bigger impact that they're doing in a shorter amount of time and get some help in doing that. So if that's you and you're looking for help in you know, building a personal brand, getting better at outbound, getting more qualified meetings, and also closing more too. We're going to talk all about closing and how to do discovery demos, that sort of stuff. Hit me up, jason at blissfulprospecting.com. Put squad in the subject line. I'd love to hear from you. Let's get to the episode today with Ryan. So I love the whale hunter, you know, kind of <laughs> kind of thing, you know, like what was your first enterprise, you know, sales experience like? Yeah, so great question, man. So that all started when, when I was a rep and it was so funny. I, I remember this vividly like it was yesterday. So I just shifted to outside sales. I didn't sell a single deal for the first nine months. Yeah, I was in outside sales. I had probably two managers in that time. We had no playbook. We're just starting the Chicago market from scratch. I was selling managed services around how people print, right? One of the least sexiest things you could possibly sell. But we put all these adjectives around it. So it sounds sexy, right? But it's not blockchain or AI or anything like that. 
So essentially what happened was I was looking and I'm like, all right, I barely scraped by. I ended up closing a deal month 9, 10, 11, 12, right? So I started a stack. And then second year in, doing the same thing. I was grinding my butt off because I come from a Midwest background where very blue collar, very hard work is part of my values, right? And so then eventually I sat back and I looked at him like, holy cow, there's this guy who come the end of the year, he's 200% of his quota. And basically he worked nine months of the year, took four vacations, flying on private jets. I'm like, what is this guy doing? So I reverse engineered like all the deals that he got that year. And I'm like, oh, he's got like two deals that are like 140% of his number. Huh, maybe there's an opportunity there, right? So then I backed into that and I started really, really focusing, not on all my deals, but almost like a balanced portfolio when you look at investments, right? How do I carve out some of those like grand slams where if I get them, it's just gonna like crush my number, right? And so what happened is, I did a crawl up strategy with a company called Towers Watson or Watson Wyatt. Have you ever heard of them? No, I haven't. They're like Marsh McLennan. They're like a multi-billion dollar company. Okay. When, Isn't that funny though that most of the multi-billion com- dollar companies are ones you've like never heard of? <laughs> never heard of them. Yeah. Like it's so funny, man. There's so many of them. Like Palantir is like a $40 billion company that Peter Thiel owns or whatever. So anyways, long story short... What happened was, so I was reaching out. I'm like, I got to get in whatever way I can. We are an unknown brand. We had no marketing, no STRs, none of that stuff. So I had to work really, really hard to get in. And I'm like, okay, if I strategically, instead of trying to go to the CFO, if I hit like a regional director of finance, I might have a shot of attacking a piece of it, proving it out, and then like scaling up, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how the experience began. Eventually, I got into that opportunity. And what happened was I grew it. It started off at like $30,000 a month in monthly recurring revenue and grew that all the way up to $200,000 a month from that. Wow. So that's truly how it happened. But it was so funny. It was a classic example of like, when you get in a deal, right? Like, oh, this is amazing. I'm so excited. This is gonna be awesome. They're like, yep, Brian, we've decided we're gonna go with you. And then, you know, I'm like, okay, cool. We gotta work on the contract, get the contract done. Let's get this done as fast as possible, right? All of a sudden I got a call. And on that call, they're like, Ryan, I, I gotta talk to you about something. So when you're, you're like director of end user computing of a really big company tells you that, like kind of makes your stump drop, right? Yeah. Especially after you've been working on a deal for nine months. And so I'm like, and this is the first time going through it. So I'm like scared shitless, right? If I could swear on here, I don't know if I could swear or not. Oh, absolutely. But, you can swear. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> I, okay. I try and keep it clean for the most part, but every now and then it slips. Yeah. So anyways, dude, I'm in there and he's like, hey, Ryan, well, you know what? We just hired a new director of procurement and this needs to get run by him. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, no! Like, every salesperson's like nightmare. Director of procurement, got to run it by him. And you know, the first thing I talked to him about, he's like, well, we got to slow this process down. I think we're going to do an RFP process. And so I kind of back-channeled and really leveraged, doubled down on the relationships and got him to buy off on like trying this out as a pilot, these couple locations, or this one location, a couple locations that I tried. And so eventually they signed it and that director of procurement slash sourcing, I ended up building an amazing relationship with them. And it ended up being, that's how it kind of grew to that level. So that's how it all started, man. There's one thing that really sticks out to me about the story and the fact that you reverse engineered another reps, the most successful rep at your company, you reverse engineered how they did it. And I think that's really underrated. Oh yeah. Like whether it's prospecting, 
selling, whatever it is, is what are the really good people at your company doing or anyone that's closing deals and reverse engineering and really looking really close at the timing, who was involved, who was the first point of contact. It's like whatever you do, it's already been done in sales, really, for the most part. Okay, so, I mean, we could take this conversation in so many different ways, man. But how should someone think about, because this is, you know, with enterprise sales, there's definitely a learning curve. And even selling stuff that's not necessarily enterprise, there's a big learning curve for me going from B2C to B2B sales when I was no longer selling to the business owner. Right. And now I'm interacting with multiple people. How do you think about this like multi-threading kind of piece? And I know you have a framework, you call it decision-making funnels. Like where do you start when you're like, hey, I want to break into this account. I want to land this big deal. Where do you even think about starting? Yeah. And so what I would say is at its simplest, there's like, there's three components, three main components that I focus on with with decision-making funnels. And it's so funny because like, until I step back, you know, you know how you like build your internal algorithms of like your mental model of how to approach things. Yeah. This was my model and we used it across over 35 deals that were $500,000 or more and even closed a $20 million deal with Amazon Oh damn! by leveraging this. Yeah. So there's some painful losses in there too. They weren't all wins, right? There's yeah. a deal worked on for 24 months. That was an $18 million deal. And we were the first loser out of 30 people. So we were second place, right? And so all of this is built in like that experience, that losses, the 5 a.m. flights in the morning, the shit sandwich that you have to eat going through this, all kind of, this is how it was born out of it. So when you look at it, there's there's three areas. So if you want to tackle a big deal, the number one thing you have to do, and I look at this as like, whenever you're talking about a big deal, one department is nine and a half times out of 10, not making the decision by itself. Mm -hmm. It's just we're too collaborative. People over collaborate now to the point where it's ridiculous. At the same time, budget's starting to shift so that, that basically business units are getting more and more budget every year as opposed to IT. So it's yeah. totally changing the dynamic of what's happening. But the number one thing to look at is stack rank. So if there's multiple departments involved, stack rank on a scale of one through three, who is the biggest budget holder if it's fragmented or the solo budget holder? And then they're supporting departments, right? So then you know the pecking area of at least the general direction and where you should focus and aim. So that's step number one. Step number two is every department has different levels of budgeting sign-off authority. And then this aligns with your framework, Jason, where you're talking about what's their priority, right? And being relevant. And so really understanding the priority of each individual level going vertically And then if you do it across multiple departments, so you look at it vertically and horizontally as well. So a tactical example of this would be like, we were trying to work on a deal with Lowe's, Lowe's Corporation, right? Fortune, I think 55. And, you know, one of the things is people get enamored with these big titles that folks have and what they're involved with. And I'll give you an example. Really amazing guy was a a senior director of sourcing. And that senior director of sourcing had... $50 $50 million in spend reduction he was responsible for. Guess how much that guy could sign off on? 10,000 bucks. Was it really low number? Dude, it was like 50 grand. Yeah. So like even a VP is like 200K. And this yeah. is a Fortune 500, man. This is like Fortune 50. This isn't like, so really truly understanding those dollar marks and navigating almost like, and like you could say like, hey, the total contract value, and this is earlier in the process, could range from X to Y you have what's your budget level authority when it comes to that? Not do you sign off on this, right? It's more like, 
hey, are you in the 100 range? Are you in the 50? And people will tell you as long as you're not like douchey about it, right? As long as you're asking the right way. Yeah. So I think that's part of it. And then basically understanding the goals, roles, and priorities of each individual level. So if you look at from macro to micro, like C-level to could be, let's just say, vice president, director, manager, end user, every single one of those roles, or I should say titles, has different KPIs, usually two to three things that they're measured on and they get their bonus on. And then at the same time, they usually have maybe two to three major projects that they're working on. And so basically trying to underpin your solution into one of those major initiatives and their KPIs, which massively accelerates the time to close a deal. Okay, so that's number two. Number three, do you have a question, man, or no? I will here in a second, but I'll let you go. Let me keep rolling, man, okay. And then number three, and this is one that you don't see very much. I've seen some very strong-minded people, a lot of them that I respect, that talk on LinkedIn or out there. It's like, relationships don't matter that much anymore, blah, 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 Dude, so logic is how people make decisions, which was the decision-making funnel I just went through, the second one, right? Mm-hmm. But emotion is what creates action. And when you're working these big deals and you're spending anywhere from, could be six months to two years, do you think that it matters how much someone really likes and knows that they care about you? And the answer is yes, because if you don't and they go ahead with your deal, they could potentially lose their job. Yeah, They could literally lose their job if they make the wrong decision. So they have to inherently trust you like a brother, like a sister, like a mother, father, whatever you want to say, right, ma'am? So tactically, what you could do is now that you've had it mapped out, you know which departments are your priorities to focus on in terms of one, two, and three. Then you know vertically how much people can sign off on, what's their goals and priorities from the C-level down to the manager, right? Then the next step is you apply a number to those people. And this is where I integrate relationship strategy. So the relationship strategy or relationship ranking is on a scale of one through 10, one being that they won't return your call at all. Five will be they'll meet with you outside of other people. They'll meet with you one-on-one. And 10 will be that they will invite you to their kid's birthday party, right? So like that kind of level. And so what'll happen is if you really, really rate the major players involved, the top 10 to 12 people on those scales, you'll know like, hey, I got gaps, right? I got a lot of ones here. People won't return my calls. Like, so you really have no relationship with them. And because the sales cycle is longer, you got time to course correct that and shape that in the right direction. So that's an overly simplified version of it, but does that help? No, this is killer. So let's start with the step one is kind of this where piece, right? The yep. stack the biggest, you know, budget holder, prioritize on a vertical level and the horizontal level. How much of this prep work is happening before you even start reaching out to anyone? Yeah, well, so it's interesting. It depends. Like it depends on your solution. Some mm-hmm. solutions are very clearly defined where like, let's say example, you're selling a MarTech solution, right? You know, it's going to be a combination if you're selling an enterprise deal of marketing and IT predominantly, and then it might be supporting a business unit. So it's going to be a lot more clear cut. But when you're dealing with like enterprise software, like an ERP solution or a managed service that's touching a lot of different departments, like in retail, for example, there's some retail companies that are doing amazing right now, but someone like Whole Foods, that's what we work with, right? They had store operations, they had IT shared services, they had finance, and then they had sourcing. So 
that's where you got to really start to look at like, okay, how do we narrow this down in terms of that? So, so you're kind of making a hypothesis. It sounds like based on maybe other deals that you've closed with similar companies and how that kind of worked out. And did you find that because so much of this, it sounds like is being so in tune with the buying process and then also just the, the organizational structure, how decisions are made you know, internally at a company, did you find that process was fairly similar across a lot of these companies or were the processes and the the authority and all that stuff, was it very different between the two or somewhere in between? You know what's interesting? Patterns started to form regardless of the verticals. However, it's really interesting that certain verticals had key power players that would trump other folks that wasn't consistent with that. So there'd be general patterns, but then there'd be vertical specific by the way that people act. And I'll give you an example, like a CISO at a healthcare company where you can get fined $30 million for a HIPAA violation is gonna have a lot more say than let's say a CISO at, I don't know, maybe a company where like, let's say manufacturing, right? Like a, a normal manufacturing where it's not as big of a priority. So there's different weightings sometimes that exist because of that. And you're just kind of picking up on this throughout your interactions with people and trying to figure out what the, and I'm assuming this is where the relationship ranking kind of comes into where you know, if you have a really good champion that understands the internal politics at the company, is that where you're kind of getting a little bit of help with this too? Yeah. So I, here's the thing, man. One of the best things about enterprise deals is that you have time. One of yeah. the worst things about enterprise deals is that you have time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like the thing that makes it really difficult is you have to qualify really hard. So I recommend doing it, yeah, in advance. There's some stuff and patterns you start to see, and there's some prep work you can do. But ultimately, it all comes down with asking the right questions at the first meeting or entry point, and then continually, continually verifying those questions as you go throughout the process. Because what's going to happen is different people will tell you different things. So you start to put together the puzzle of what the real picture is, because it's all based on their individual perception. Yeah. What do you find in your experience with your clients and doing a ton of this yourself, what does the first entry point look like? Is it a meeting with a champion, with one person? Is it a group meeting? What did the entry point typically look like to get, once you've made contact with the company? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can leverage it. And I wouldn't say the standard, but the more you move up market, the more gated and protected the higher level folks are. Yeah. So if you're at a a $15 billion company and you're calling into them, a VP is like the equivalent of like a, a CIO at a $500 million company, right? Like yeah. it's that level of authority differential. You know, one of the things that I believe strongly in for enterprise, because at the same time, enterprise buyers are more high maintenance. They yeah. have higher expectations, right? Of, of when people come in, they don't want amateur hour with a bunch of people just like giving a canned presentation and talking about it. So they expect you to know their verticals. The beautiful thing about that is they start to congregate in certain areas. So there's like CIO groups specific for retail. There's store operations, VPs specific for banking or field operations. So there's niche areas where the exact targets that you want are there. And one of my favorite things is you have to cold prospecting is probably the hardest way to get into big companies, right? Mm -hmm. However, if you could penetrate that association, and I'll give you an example one, there's an organization called Chime. So anybody who's listening to healthcare right now and they target CIOs, Chime is something you should look strongly at. Now, it's not cheap. However, it's basically about 
800 to 1,000 CIOs of the biggest healthcare companies in the US, right? So what we did is we got a customer and then found out who was on the board there, found out it was one of our customers actually, continued to build that relationship, sponsored it through that guy in connection with him. And that person introduced us to so many other people and he had massive respect because he was on the executive board of, he was a leader of leaders, right? Yeah. So how do you get your leader of leaders to sponsor you to other people? And so that's a, that's a great way once you get past the cold calling is find those groups that your customers are in because they're probably in it, whether you know it or not. Yeah. So I'm assuming you're probably spending just tons of time on places like LinkedIn looking for mutual connections and you know things like that, people that might know people and that sort of stuff. What kind of tools and stuff were you using for this? Okay, so check this out. So I got something that it doesn't matter if you are a startup founder that's trying to scale revenue by yourself. It doesn't matter if you're an SDR. It doesn't matter if you're a sales leader. It doesn't matter. And this works all the way, Jason, I'm telling you, from 1 million in revenue, or even less, all the way to Google, right? And I know that because I'm having conversations with Google about how they're doing this, right? Or how they're not doing it. But what I would tell you is one of the things that's absolutely amazing that you could do, doesn't require a lot of time, I'll tell you. Do you want me to walk you through this? Because this is like gold. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Okay, cool. So what you could do essentially is like, once you establish some kind of customer base and everybody has some kind of customer base, not everybody, but if you're not a startup, you have some semblance of customers, right? So one of the beautiful things you could do is nobody that I've seen consistently, and this is what I help companies implement, creates scalable customer to customer referral systems, right? They'll ask periodically, they ask the wrong way, but they don't create that as a lead gen source. And the beautiful thing about that is deals close typically in half the amount of time and at significantly higher margins because they come from a trusted source. So it's a transfer of brand, right? So it's something that's absolutely beautiful that exists. And a real simple way to do it is a couple of things. Step one, basically, you connect with your customer on LinkedIn. Step two, well, first of all, step one, you identify other targets you want, right? Their ICP or their perfect customer profile. I'm sure we could get into later, but... Step one, step two, connect to them on LinkedIn. Step three, about 75% of them will have their connections open on LinkedIn. You jump in those connections, you filter them by your ICP, you leverage a tool like Apollo, basically drop those in a list of about 10, right? The 10 perfect people. Then when you have a review with the customer or you talk to the customer, take them out, you give them something of value so they feel like they have to reciprocate. And when in terms of that, you also position how you want to spend more time on your customers than prospecting. You ask them if they know the 10 people. Typically, they might know five out of the 10. And ask them if you could send an email and copy them on them. You do that, execute on it, and you might get two to three appointments out of that. Rinse and repeat. Yeah, I love that. It's the social proof and mutual connections and all this other stuff is so... I think people know that it's important, but actually leveraging it in practice is, I don't it's just very tough, you know, for a lot of people. I mean, another really simple filter that I always recommend on LinkedIn is looking at who is an ex-employee of an existing customer of yours mm-hmm. that fits that role. I mean, it's just, and, and then there's just dozens of different other avenues that you can do and work through. But yeah, again, getting referrals from your customers, it's, that's huge. And this is one example too. too, you know, it's getting that meeting with the VP or C-level person is, you know, you're not going to get it through a cold email. Yeah. And you're dead on, man. And there's other ways to do it. I'm kind of obsessed with this because I see the, the opportunity and, and I, I'm seeing amazing results with the people I'm helping implement this. 
But to give you an example from Dropbox, this is different. This is more of a digital customer versus like an enterprise customer, but the same principles apply. So basically they grew from, I think it was like 100,000 users to 4 million users in 18 months. Jeez. And one of their primary growth strategies was through referrals. And what they did is when they when someone opted in for Dropbox, right? As the onboarding checklist, and Apollo does this, just watch what Apollo does when you're a new user. They do the mm-hmm. same thing. They have the checklist. Okay, do this, do this, do this. Okay, if you recommend two people or you include two people's email addresses, you get an extra 250 megs of space for free. And so that was just that alone accounted for 35% of their growth month over month, just those referrals. And it's digital. They set it up. So if you implement multiple systems like that throughout a process, it's an amazing opportunity. Yeah, it's exponential returns, man. It's, uh, I was just talking because I I work fairly closely with the team at Apollo on different kinds of stuff. It's the tool I always recommend. And there's such a great example of product like growth. I mean, they don't even really have much of a marketing department right now. And they just have oh, nice. grown like bananas, you know? Okay, so the second piece with the goals, roles, and priorities, how are you figuring some of this stuff out? Is, you know, are you spending a lot of time looking at quarterly reports and transcripts and stuff like that? And again, kind of coming up with hypothesis and then approaching these people? Is it just as simple as asking them? Like, how do you kind of fill in some of those goals, roles, and priorities? Yeah. So funny thing is I never looked at that or my team never looked at it. Mm-hmm. It was really the flow of the conversation in the first meeting. And I'm not saying we were unprepared. There's some work you did, right? You wanted to know who the, the key players were. Cause if you're calling on someone for three months or to five months or a year to try and get it, you want to make sure, damn sure it's the right person. Right. So yeah. you want to have some qualifiers. However, when you look at this, when we dealt, there was a lot of different inconsistencies with the buying process. So it didn't matter exactly. Like that's not going to show up in a 10K or a financial report. Now there's macro factors that dictate how a company acts, whether they're, they just went through a merger, you know, and they promised the street, they got to save $500 million in savings, or, you know, they're on an acquisition spree, all different factors like that, that it's good to know, as well as the ownership structure, because that dictates a lot of their motivations. But in terms of, to answer your question, I mean, I think the first appointment is really the key way to do that. And if you ask the questions the right way, and it's usually pretty simple, right? So it's a lot along the lines of a combination of being direct, but having an art to it. So when you're trying to find those questions out, you understand like, okay, not like the the big thing people ask is like, who makes the decision on that, right? The, The number one, oh, so who makes the decision on this? Who signs off on that? Which like... That's like checking someone, it's like smacking someone in the face and like telling them that that their baby's ugly. You know what I mean? Like, it's like that equivalent. Like it just jars people emotionally because they're like, ah, you know, people have egos that get in these big companies. Like I made the decision. What are you talking about? Yeah. You know? However, if you ask the question a little bit differently, more along the lines of like, okay, so John, you know, like, let's say we're selling a, like the solution, a managed service solution, right? Management services solution like we, we used to do, Right. Right now, who's the incumbent that handles this, right? And basically, you go across different buckets. Like, okay, well, IT buys the printers and they're responsible for that. Store operations has the supplies and they pay for that, right? And then sourcing does the service or whatever, right? So you have the three different areas. Well, if you look at it, 
in terms of the amount of spend, 80% of it was on the store operation side. So you know that that's the area, the primary area to focus on in terms of prioritization. You know what I mean? So it's just like asking questions like that. And then you could start to piece together really fast. Like, because people will be like, yeah, this sounds great. Let's go ahead. And you're like, well, you know, I know you're responsible for a part of it. However, they pay for 80% of it. So it makes sense to get them involved up front. You know, our most successful engagements have gone that way. Blah, 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 blah. Right. So, yeah. So you're kind of bringing in how it's worked in the past with other companies and how you know about the buying process and then asking them questions around that without saying, hey, who's the decision maker here? (laughs) Yeah, you just ask like subtly, like, like, for example, people ask like, what's the number one thing that's going to get this deal done, which is pretty direct and abrasive versus like, hey, Mr. Customer, what's like your number one priority right now that you're focused on? Because I want to align with that. It's really like two different ways to kind of get to the same answer and one turns people off and one enrolls people to your vision. Yeah. One's about what you want and one is about getting them what they want. Exactly. Yeah. That's good, man. You nailed it. You nailed it, Jason. If you just, everyone is just, hey, instead of a me-centric approach, just make it you-centric. The other person thinking about like what will make them take action. You said emotion creates action. You know, it's, if you can align something to someone's number one priority, that's the most important thing that they work on. And if they're an executive at a Fortune 50 or Fortune 500 company, this is their life. <laughs> I love this piece. So I want to hit on something sort of briefly. We don't have enough time to go like super deep on discovery. But in general, when you think about discovery, where do you see people missing the mark as they're doing discovery? And on the enterprise level, I mean, this it's not just a discovery. I mean, it's just the discovery is that, sounds like a months or potentially years long process. But how do you think about discovery? Where do you see sales teams and the people you're working with? Where do you see them missing the mark when it comes to discovery? Yeah, they just robotically ask questions. They, I mean, that's one. And, you know, like deals shouldn't take years, but every now and then there's those really, really big ones that do, right? Mm-hmm. However, like the other area in terms of discovery, and I think this is critical, Rob Jepson talks about dollarizing the problem which is a great way to to articulate it, is really like people trust numbers, people trust science, and people trust physics. You know, so when you're trying to basically talk about how you're going to solve a problem, do you know who the worst people in the world are at putting together an ROI? Probably really technical, logical people like CFOs and stuff like that. Your prospects. Your your prospects are the worst possible people in the world at putting together ROIs. And the reason for that, Jason, you know what the reason for it is? It's because they don't know as much about your solution as you do. However, it's your job to quantify the benefits that they're going to get, even if something is typically unquantifiable or typically not quantified. If it's people's hours, you take those hours, you quantify the number of hours in a month, then you take it one step further to... What does that person get paid on an hourly basis, annual basis with benefits? And you apply a number to it, right? The cost to process an invoice. What does that cost? $50 an invoice, right? And even though they might not totally agree with all those individualized components of what's called soft costs that you create hard costs into, is it still establishes value in their mind, even though they might not count that as they count that. And I'm using air quotes, right? The other thing too is when you have someone that, that says this is a problem, but they have a number attached to it. This is a million dollar problem. 
that's a big difference in terms of how people look at it. Yeah. And the level of urgency. If you say, oh yeah, this is a, a big problem. Oh, this is a big million dollar problem. And we only got to spend a hundred thousand dollars to solve it. That looks like you're putting a hundred thousand dollars in and getting a million dollars out. Right. So that's the kind of perspective you want people to focus on because then it, it speeds up the sales process. It shifts their priorities and it gets them focused on the outcome you're delivering versus how expensive your solution is. Got it. So if we were looking at, let's say, the training solutions that I sell, which really the big business value is how is this going to drive more qualified meetings for us so that we can close more revenue from those meetings? Would quantifying the problem then be looking out, how are you currently doing this? And if it were better, what's that gap? And that becomes the problem. That becomes the thing that they're losing out on. And then being able to quantify and say, hey, because I think this is where a lot of people are thinking, people buy based on emotion, justify with logic. And there's just so much around ROI calculators. There's so much bad advice on LinkedIn around, oh, ROI doesn't matter. And what you're not thinking about is like the person that has to sell this to their boss is going to want logical reasons why. <laughs> They're not as emotionally invested into oh, that. Totally. So it's like you do both at the same time, it sounds like. but Yeah, you got to hit both. You got to hit both yeah. areas, right? I know we're up on, almost up on time, but I'll give like take a couple steps further what you're talking about, right? So let's say on average, someone, you know, company you're trying to work with gets 100 appointments a month, right? And they want to get, they know that that's not enough. Of those 100 appointments, on average, 30% of them convert to an active opportunity, which is, let's say, 30 opportunities of those 30 active opportunities, 10 of them close, right? Or yeah, so one out of three, one out of three, basically is what we're doing. 30%, 30%, right? 33% on the second time. So those 10 deals are worth $50,000 a piece. Mm-hmm. So that's 500K. So Jason, if you could help their team with the same staff without adding any people, basically add 100 appointments, you're adding $500,000 in revenue per month, let's say, right? So when you look at it, basically by them not knowing, the cost of them not knowing is $6 million a year. Yep. So you charge $60,000, I think that's worth it. They're putting out $60,000, they're getting 6 million back. I'd say that's a home run, wouldn't you? Yeah, no, absolutely. So that's the cost of them not knowing how to execute like you could deliver. And then when people look at it in that way, they're like, yeah, this is stupid. but People just don't phrase it that way. You know, they don't position it that way. And that's where the opportunity is because it makes it real binary for people and easy for people to make decisions and see the transfer of value by going with your services versus staying status quo or going with someone else who's not as good as you. And essentially with the ROI to kind of button that up, what you're suggesting is don't allow the customer to do it themselves, but you also don't do it yourself. You kind of build the case and get them to validate the numbers. So then when they come to their boss, he or she is not going to be like, hey, where the fuck did these numbers come from? They'll be like, oh, yeah, I looked at these. I think these are pretty realistic based on my experience and what I know that we can get. And now you have something validated by internally from oh, them. Oh, totally. You're 100% accurate on that. And they'll even speak up in the meetings, like unprompted. Like, yeah, these are the numbers we went over together. You know, because what will usually, every single time, the signer will be like, hey, this seems high. And they'll look over at the person who you've been working with. They're like, this seems kind of high. They're like, no, I, I did the numbers. It looks good. And they're like, oh, okay. Check the box. You just saved yourself about three, four months of sales cycle time going back and forth trying to justify it. Yeah, love it, dude. We're out of time, man. I mean, we could have spent a, like three hours probably talking about all this <laughs> stuff and not come close to unpacking it all. But 
Dude, where can people go to learn more about you? What do you got going on? How are you working with people? Let us know a little bit more how people can connect with you. Yeah, man. So I my website's ryanstaley.io. I have a challenge that's coming out. When is this being aired? I'm not sure. Maybe <laughs> uh, maybe first part of July, we'll say. Okay, okay. So <laughs> I should be having, yeah, it, this could correspond nicely, but I'm planning on doing a five-day challenge. That's now. Nah, this could always shift because I'm one of those guys, right? But on uh, referrals for revenue. So how to scale revenue through referrals. And however, in the interim, hit me up, man. Hit me up on LinkedIn. Connect with me. Say, say I saw you on Jason Bay's show. I have my own podcast as well, but I think LinkedIn is probably the best place. But yeah, there's case studies. There's information on my website, so ryansdaily.io. And then if you're looking for help, there's just a, a contact me form on there. You could hit out and uh, reach out, man. I'd love to help any friends of the family for you. And uh, yeah, man, that's it. That was a fun one. I love his LinkedIn hack around, you know, looking at where you can get connections within the company and making sure to leverage your customer network and also the network of your current employer too. If you're working at a really big company, oftentimes there can be people at your company that are loosely connected to people at that company that could get you an intro. I just love that piece. This is a really fun one I do with Ryan. Like I said, we focused on sales today, which we're gonna be doing a lot more of on the podcast. So I know there's a lot of you SDRs, BDRs listening to this. I think it's really good for you to hear about sales and hopefully you're looking to get into some sort of full cycle role at some point. And for anyone that's doing full cycle sales, I wanted to really focus on getting some more sales content in front of you because you can get all the meetings you want, but if you don't close them, what's the point, right? So thanks for tuning in today. Please like, subscribe, leave a review, all that good stuff. If you're a fan of the show, it keeps the audience growing with more folks like you and more guests on like Ryan as well. So appreciate you tuning in. We'll talk to you later.